Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. That's all we're looking at tonight. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these stories. They are short, but they are penetrating because they are pictures of passion. And I pray as we consider them that you would reveal to us our own hearts, that we could be honest with ourselves about what we are giving our lives to, about what we're buying with everything that we have. And I pray, dear Lord, you would paint a picture of your kingdom and your son that would be worth giving up everything in order to have. So be with us, dear God, and soften our hearts, Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. Amen. So I know now, after that introduction, the question on everybody's mind and what you're thinking right now. Britain, what shoes do you have on and why are they so amazing? And I understand that. And actually, Jack Craddock walked in tonight and those honestly were his first words. He's like, dude, what's up with those shoes? So anyways, these are the shoes. You haven't seen them before. All right. They look odd, and you, you're probably thinking maybe these are some kind of fancy, like, casual leather shoes. Here's the thing about them. They're actually Reebok shoes, and they're actually made for a very specific purpose, but I don't use them for that purpose, but I still like them. They're specifically powerlifting shoes, which is different from Olympic lifting. And to give you a picture of my obsession with shoes, when Elizabeth and I got married, I had significantly more shoes than her. And the only reason that she has more shoes than me now is because when I got married to her, there was another person I could buy shoes for. (laughs) Again, the obsession with shoes, these are powerlifting shoes. I have a pair of Olympic lifting shoes and a pair of squatting shoes. That's remarkable for two different reasons. First of all, none of y'all even knew lifting shoes existed, let alone in three different kind of incarnations. The other thing that's remarkable about it is I'm not even very strong. (laughs) But I love shoes. And these shoes I shopped for for about three months. And you know what I'm talking about. You go on the internet and you check them out. And this certain color uh, combination was only available from East Bay. Even though these are Reebok shoes, you couldn't get this color combination off the Reebok website or in the Reebok stores. (laughs) But I wanted powerlifting shoes to use for casual wear. So I didn't want the outlandish colors that they have for the gym on the Reebok site. Y'all understand the complexity of these kind of decisions, I'm sure. (laughs) But I devoted hours and even weeks and even months to looking for these shoes convinced that I was finding the perfect shoe. I'm very happy with the shoe. I'd love to talk to you about it with you later if you have uh, questions. But what I have all throughout my house, in my closet, and in my garage is pairs of shoes that I shopped for, was convinced they would make me happy, and are now just collecting dust somewhere. And this is a story about shopping. Uh, This is a story about hearts that seek treasures and look. And the reality is is that we are actually shoppers by nature. This is one of the things Jesus is telling us. By virtue of being human, we are looking around hoping to latch on to something 
And to secure that treasure, to get the perfect pair of shoes, which I can help you get if you need help, the perfect relationship, the perfect college, the perfect job, the perfect friend, and at the same time, all of us, even in our young lives, we already have garages full of former dreams that we actually got. And they're already sitting in our garage. And the allure that draw us to shop and look and work hard to get those dreams led us to believe that dream would be everything. And we all got dreams sitting in our garage now. And we've got another dream we're aiming for. This is the way one writer said it. All the children of Adam, all human beings, at all times, in all places, are shopping night and day for the mystery of the city of God. True enough, like any random group of shoppers... We have our share of gullibility and questionable taste and proneness to buy what's in the store rather than wait for what they're really looking for. But we are shopping. We are shopping and we know it because we're jealous people. We see things that other people have and we want it. That is the heart of a shopper. I don't have what they have, the life that they have. This is a place, I'm sure, you, this is not all wrong. This just reveals that we are shoppers. This is, I've never talked to a bigger group of people that all want mentors. People at Stanford are longing for mentors. People at Stanford are looking for older people that have what they want so that they can learn how to shop for it and get it. Right? There's comparison and jealousy that reveals that our heart's shopping, it's chasing, it's looking You know what? Another thing that reveals our shopping heart, I think every time you open up the browser on your computer and you pull up those videos or those pictures of those things that you know you don't want to be looking at, they're not tasteful to look at, that is your heart longing for something. Even after a good day, your heart runs to those images and those pictures and it's screaming for something. That is the heart. It's a concession. It's an admission that you're longing for something. We're all weighing our social choices. Everybody's doing cost-benefit analysis on fall getaway next weekend and what you're going to do this weekend and whether or not you're going to go to the game because you're a shopper and you're looking for something. We're all overcommitted. And what we're like and what you're going through your college career like and after college as well, and I'm doing it literally with shoes, but we also do it metaphorically with a lot of other things, is we're grabbing things and we're saying, I want that and I want that and I want that and I want that. And our arms are full and we're dropping things along the way. Because in all of our overcommitment, we're we're also doing a lot of things kind of halfway. But we think, oh, I see something else I have to have. And what's really threatening to shoppers is people who are at rest. Whose hearts seem to be satisfied. Who have this thing called contentment. And what's even more threatening than people that seem to have contentment are people that have joy. And one of the things that's awesome when it happens at Stanford is when people get married before they graduate. There's one here tonight. And what's cool about it, and I know she's probably heard this, but we haven't talked about it, but I know this happens everywhere. It's happened to every married couple I've met at Stanford is people look at them with suspicion as if like, oh, well, you're not trying as hard for everybody as everybody else anymore. And that kind of like, well, you're kind of You're giving up by kind of building this domestic environment now when you should be doing all this kind of pre-professional stuff, whatever it is. And reality is we're actually judging those people because we're actually intimidated by the fact that they are rested. That they have found something worthy of loving and they're not as anxious anymore. And they're like, hey, I'm all in on this and I don't need that other stuff. 
there can actually be something off-putting when we meet people who have stopped shopping and seem to be happy. Uh, the university, the RUF guy at University of Vermont, I was hanging out with him this summer. He's talking about the culture there, and he says it's very fashionable at University of Vermont to look for God. Everybody's looking for God. It's very offensive to find him. And what Jesus is telling us here is Jesus is saying, I'm the treasure. I am the treasure. I am the thing you are shopping for. These are two parables of what it looks like to find that treasure that gives our hearts rest. And we're going to look at three aspects of it. How did they find it? What did it do to them? And why? How did they find treasure? What did it do to them? And and then why? And I'm borrowing so many of these thoughts from the RUF campus minister at Cal. He's a great friend of mine. He preached a beautiful sermon on this several months back. And I'm just ripping stuff off from him. His name's Brent, and he's actually teaching at our fall getaway. Um, So how did these guys find rest in this parable? There are two different stories being told. The first guy is in a field. We're not giving many details. These are very short. We're not told why he was there. We are not told that he's looking for anything. He was just doing life. He was just walking, he was just working, he was just scheduling, he was just exercising, studying, and just managing life like all of us are doing tonight, not looking for anything profound. And he stumbles onto a treasure that's hidden in the field. And the story is not as bizarre to them as it seems to us. At this point in time in the ancient Near East, banks didn't exist, private individuals didn't use banks. If you had something valuable, and let's say you had to leave your land for a while, or there was an invasion coming or something like that, the way you saved things is you would pack them up in a clay pot and bury them in your property. Well, at this point in time as well, personal property rights and stuff, you know, deeds didn't exist, people would die. You know, they'd go off and traveling and never come back and all that kind of stuff. So there were treasures buried all around the ancient Near East. Everybody's bank was simply the ground, and people lost track of things. So this is not terribly uncommon. And there were literally buried treasures everywhere, and he wasn't looking. And what's remarkable about this first story is how unremarkable and unanticipated the discovery is. He wasn't looking. Presumably, all kinds of people were walking across this field, day in and day out, walking past the very same field and never saw anything. The pearl merchant, on the other hand, is actually looking. He's searching. He's someone who shops very actively and does research. And this is a pearl that's on display in the market, that passerbys see. They look in the window and they know, well, that's a pearl and it's worth something. Everybody saw it, but he was the only one that saw its true value. Everybody else was walking by, but he saw its true value. He was the only one that saw that it was worth everything. And with just simply the search, this is what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is saying that the treasure is discovered in ordinary ways and in ordinary places. We think something as big as the treasure, the thing that is going to give our hearts rest... It's got to be found in the exclamation points in life. Right? The cosmic Ryan Gosling romance story. That happens for you, right? That's the treasure. Right? The million dollar startup, hiking the Andes. Right? Solving a problem in the third world, getting into Stanford, moments of recognition for your greatness. And if you haven't discovered this yet, you will soon. Life doesn't take place in the exclamation points. 
purpose and treasure and joy are basically never really consummated in the exclamation points. The exclamation points are not bad. And probably all of us have experienced them to one degree or another. But, and, but we all know this. They're ephemeral. They're like mist. They're gone very quickly. And then what you do is you start chasing another exclamation point. Freshman, you should, you, you're probably already experiencing this. You got into Stanford. And Stanford's already less exciting than getting in was. That exclamation point you've already passed by. And now there's something else on your horizon, a new one that you've got to get to. This is what Isaiah 53 said about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty that would attract you to him. Nothing in his appearance that you would desire him. Paul says this about Jesus in Philippians 2, that Jesus had all the access and glory and privilege and power of divinity. And he set it aside and he became an average man in order to serve people, in order to wash feet, in order to feed hungry people, in order to be a friend to outsiders. Life is normal. Life is ordinary. And it really is true that only an out-of-touch, privileged elitist would think otherwise. Only an out-of-touch privileged elitists would think life is the exclamation points that means you're out of touch with the global human experience most people alive today their main goal this is most people alive on the planet their main goal is to get enough calories for their family faithful good wonderful living for them is getting enough calories for their family y'all that's what life is it's a privilege to have a stanford exclamation point i'm not saying it's bad but life is much more ordinary. And the beauty of Jesus is that the one who has all the exclamation points, he sets them all aside and he comes humbly and simply into this life and he serves in a boring fashion and dives shamefully, all to say, I love you. The beauty of gospel and the beauty of the kingdom of God, the beauty of Jesus, is that it's so mundane. That these words are so simple and so mundane, we've heard them so many times, that we are missing the beautiful profundity of. The basic story of the gospel is, I love you, and I forgive you, and I give my life for you. And that's not exciting. It's just relentlessly simple. And that is so boring, next to Peter Thiel's mind-blowing lecture he gave this afternoon that teaches you how to be a billionaire. It's boring compared to Peter Thiel. And our search for treasure has become so complex. Right? You're managing all these searches at the same time. Right? When we're racked with anxiety because we're searching for the treasure through all these different avenues. And this text is challenging us to step back from our addiction to finding the next exclamation point to become extraordinary. And it's saying that real life is ordinary. The kingdom of God, the treasure alone that can satisfy the beauty of Jesus himself, may in fact be discovered in the ordinary life because this is what is truly more beautiful and has more impact and more lasting more power to shape things than exploring the alps being a friend to someone who needs a friend that's boring and that's ordinary and the alps are way cooler but that's the kingdom of god
And that's the power of the gospel. Treasure is the courage to have a hard conversation with a good friend and then endure in that friendship. That is far deeper treasure than a successful startup. You know what is awesome? Someone who wants to get coffee with you. That's ordinary. And that is special. Being, having somebody to cry with, being someone people can cry with, being helped. Helping someone. Jason really cares about the tea that he brings to RUF on, on Tuesday night. And he, like, shops for it, like I shop for shoes. And, like, we don't pay attention and, and can hardly understand him when he's trying to tell us the kind of tea he bought us. But that might be the kingdom of God, is that he just cared about offering y'all this tea that he loves. He didn't go to Safeway. He, like, ordered this stuff from he gave me where he got it from and how he tracked across the Internet. It's really ordinary, and it's a beautiful form of thoughtfulness. And you know what's way cooler than that? Peter Thiel lectures about being billionaires. But I think the kingdom of God's happening back there. I'm not sure it's happening in Peter Thiel's lectures. Buying a drink for somebody, eating a meal with somebody, setting aside really important work you have to do for someone. It's really ordinary. I think that's the kingdom of God. What is far richer than your academic and professional dreams will do more to transform and secure you is to hear the boring, sweet, enduring words of a loving Savior. The kingdom of God, life-altering treasure, is identified by those kind of moments. And Jesus is saying, the treasure worth having might be right in front of you. Don't let shiny objects distract you from the far more profound beauties of the kingdom of God that are sitting right there and are ordinary so that's what happened or sorry how um, they found it as they saw it in the ordinary aspects of life what happened to them when they saw it this is what happened a couple of weeks ago uh, if you get to know me the only thing I love as much as shoes in fact more than shoes is Alabama football let's not talk about that later (laughs) But a couple of weeks ago, the Alpine Strikers had a soccer game scheduled at the same time as the Alabama Crimson Tide. I did not have to sit down and weigh my options. I didn't have to list out pros and cons. I went to watch the Alpine Strikers. I didn't even have to think about it. I chose the Strikers over Alabama because my daughters play for the Strikers. And Jesus is telling us about the treasure of the gospel, that when you stumble onto treasure, you don't hesitate to let go of all sorts of things that you previously valued in order to have it. It immediately changes your sense of value. Alabama football, totally awesome, devoted entirely too much of my life to it, right? The second a striker's game is scheduled, I forget about it. We're supposed to be hit with the impulsiveness of both of these guys. They're short in order to make a point. Their brevity is actually part of the point. They saw the beauty of treasure, and it caused them without reservation to give up everything they had in order to have it treasure. It was obvious and swift to them. We orient our lives around our treasure. This parable is about longing and love, and it's about questioning, getting us to question what our hearts are attached to. It's about what you feel like when you find treasure. Something which all we, we, the real estate in our hearts divided up. 
cling to all these different treasures. But when you find true treasure, you consolidate that real estate and you give it all to that one thing. And none of us, it, it, it is painful. None of us really wants to deal with the real and true examination of the way that we spend our time. We don't really want to be honest with the source of, uh, and, and talk about the sorts of things that we actually constantly occupy our minds with. What hopes are guiding all of our decisions? But I can tell you this, every decision you make, from the food that you choose to eat tonight, whether you have Jason's, I'm sure, exceptional tea, right? How you speak to people afterwards, how long you decide to stay, what you choose to do tomorrow morning, what you major in, what you choose to do this summer, all of those things are guided by the thing you've given your love to, the thing that you treasure. Here's the place you can really see it. Look at the areas in your life that are non-negotiables. That when anything comes up and bumps into those areas, you're like, well, this is a non-negotiable, so that's not an option. There's actually no such thing as a non-negotiable. There's only the feeling that things are non-negotiable. Right? My homework. Problem set. Practice. Right? This party. This thing that people are doing. You don't have to do any of those things. But for the things that you value the most, doing them will not feel like an option. They are totally negotiable. But for things you value the most, they will feel like they're non-negotiable. Nothing will be able to question your loyalty to them. It will never dawn on you that you have a choice. These men, what they did, didn't feel like a decision. Our lives are guided by our treasure, and we will make all sorts of sacrifices to have it. And so part of what this forces us to do is ask ourselves the question of what do we treasure? And what are we sacrificing for it? You treasure success. If you treasure success, if that's what has your heart, what you'll do is you'll sacrifice integrity. In your studies and in your interviews, the subtle forms of cheating that you can justify, the lying, the bending the truth so as to not threaten the possibility of success, you'll sacrifice things to have it. If you want control, if that's what you treasure, you'll sacrifice friendship because you can never let people in the mess of your life and you can't go all the way into the mess of other people's life. You can only go a couple inches deep because in the mess there's a total loss of control. If you treasure significance, you'll sacrifice joy because you'll always resent the people that have more than you. If you treasure simply being liked, you'll sacrifice honesty and authenticity in your friendship because you're constantly trying to be the person everyone will like. If you treasure comfort, you'll sacrifice adventure. If you treasure being well-rounded, you'll sacrifice rest, always doing a little bit of everything and never chilling out and relaxing because you've got to be doing something else. Are you willing to take an inventory of your treasures? Can you be honest with yourself? Can you be honest about what you're giving up for your treasures? And I suspect for really all of us, what life is, is, measure, is, is kind of managing about a hundred many appetites. And they're all warring with each other for supremacy in our hearts. And what you were made for is to have one true treasure. This is why people get married in college actually intimidate us. Right? Because you wish there was just one thing that you could set your heart on and you'd have rest. And so in the meantime, what you're doing is you're feeding every little dream or hope, hoping that one of them will grow up to become a mature treasure that pushes out all the others. So you're feeding all these little appetites, hoping one of them will mature into full-blown treasure. 
They found this treasure in the ordinary nature of life, in the ordinary course of life. What it did for them is turn their life upside down. And it totally made sense to them. It wasn't even a decision to do it. Lastly, why did they do it? Right in the middle of these verses, we get this man's motivation. Why did they do this? Out of joy. For joy. It was moved by his desire for joy. That was what his motive was. I want joy. That's why I'm doing this. And you know, so many of us feel like we love a lot of different things. And I don't doubt that we really care about a lot of different things. We love a bunch of different things, but we don't experience the main thing love was made to produce. You know what love is for? Love is for joy. So we all like a ton of stuff. But how can we like so many things and have so little joy? The climax of love is joy. And joy is more than just momentary happiness. We all get that at times, and that's great. It's not to be despised. But joy is something closer and kind of a combination of delight, rest, security, and fullness kind of all mixed into one. And we don't have that. We love a lot of things, but we don't seem to be getting joy out of it. Right? We love our major, but we're not getting joy out of it. We love Stanford, but we're not getting joy out of it. We love our dating relationships, but we're not getting a lot of joy out of it. Maybe you even feel like I'm a Christian and I feel like I'm supposed to love Jesus, but I'm not getting joy out of it. Why is there no joy in all of our loves? This is why, and this is really the main point of the text, you can't truly enjoy what you love until you give away everything to have it. You cannot enjoy what you love until you give away everything to have it. So you give away your hopes, and you give away your dreams, and you give away your future possibilities. And you give away your old habits, and you give away your comforts, and you give away all the little treasures you cling to. You will never enjoy the true treasure, and it will not be true love until you give up everything to have it. Oftentimes we think when we go to a wedding... And weddings are blasts. We think what a wedding is and what a marriage is is this great saying yes between two people. That I said a great yes to Elizabeth. But that's not entirely true and that's not the whole story. A marriage is not just a great saying yes. And a marriage that is only a great saying yes is basically indistinguishable from a one night stand. It might last longer, but it's indistinguishable. There was a great saying yes at our wedding, but the primary form of the great saying yes was saying no. The way to have and to enjoy the joy of Elizabeth was for me to say no to every other woman in the world. To say no to all the women in my past, to say no to all the women at present, and to say no to all the possible future women. That's the one people forget about. Then, when I said no, I get the joy of being with Elizabeth. She's all mine, and I am all hers. And we've said no all over the place. The joy of love is expressed 
and experienced by giving up everything else. By a great renouncing of all other things, by a great saying no to things past and to things present, and even to things that you can't predict in the future. Don't try to predict them, because some of them are going to be amazing. What this parable is telling us about Jesus is that it is for joy that you give up everything to have Him. And a lot of, we think Christianity is this, it's this somber, this, all right, I'm a Christian, so now it's this stoic enterprise of suddenly kind of putting to death passion and the possibility of happiness and, and just being this, this disciplined person and stop doing all these things that we want to do. But that is a fundamental failure and misunderstanding of everything that Jesus is saying. Treasure, love, is enjoyed when all the other loves are given up in order to have it. It is for joy that you lay down your life to have Jesus. It is for joy that we set aside other loves. What repentance and faith are is nothing more than setting aside other things and holding fast to Him for joy. The motivation is joy. We are so used to our motivation being fear that we don't even think the motivation of joy is possible. Our life is one huge fear-driven endeavor. We make all kinds of plans, not for joy, but out of fear. FOMO, right? Fear of missing out is driving us to overcommit and to never rest and to feed every little mini treasure. I can't do this all, so I'm going to do a billion different things halfway because we're all afraid, and that's our motivator. You might even try to be a Christian out of fear. We can't say no to to anything because we're afraid of missing out. And so our lives are this huge fear-driven endeavor where we're feeding all these many appetites. And we can't let go of any of them because we're afraid. Jesus is saying the gospel, having the love and favor of God, the kingdom of God, the promises of grace in life, of being known and being loved, the only hope of joy is Jesus. Following Jesus, treasuring Jesus is done for joy. This sounds silly and I hate silly things, but it just works so well. We live... And make our decisions because we're afraid of missing out through FOMO. This is so cheesy, but I'm going to use it anyways. I think when you meet Jesus, you live out of JOMO. <laughs> the joy of missing out. The joy of, I don't care what y'all have because I have everything I want. You don't get it. I don't care. I'm not chasing after what you want anymore. And that's a kind of freedom that we all long for, but we're intimidated by it because we don't have that thing that is so joyful that we don't care about missing out. How do you know it's going to be worth it? If you go all in on this. Because we're still afraid. We're still feeding, wow, okay, maybe I'll buy into this Jesus. Maybe I'll give Jesus another couple of percentage points of kind of my heart's kind of love points, right? Listen to Hebrews 12 and see if it doesn't sound familiar. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus endured the cross. You know why? For joy. Jesus is driven by the same motivation he's trying to drive you. Jesus had everything. He actually had comfort. He had glory. He had power. He had applause. He had control. He had validation. He had everything we're fighting for. He had it all and he sold it all. He let go of it all. He traded in applause for shame. 
He traded in power for weakness. He traded in validation for rejection. He traded in comfort for sorrow. He traded in life for death so that he could have the one thing that he wanted more than anything else in the world, which is you. You are his hidden treasure. You are his pearl of great value. And I know some of us in here are not sure. And you may be wondering, well, how can that become true for me? How can that be true for me? How can I get in on that? And all you have to do is all you have to do is ask him, can you take me? I want to be loved that way. I want to have a treasure like that. I want to be treasured like that. But there are so many ways I don't fit. I don't fit with your people. I don't fit with your standards. I don't, I don't fit. And I'm trying to make myself worthy, but I'm not sure that I can. What if I'm not done and I'm not complete and I'm real broken and I'm still confused and I'm not even sure what this is? What if you actually got to know me? That's what we feel. And the cross is His great statement that He knows you and He loves you. The cross is the mechanism by which He takes away all that should disqualify us from this kind of love. He takes our sin, and He takes our misguided love, and He takes our failing, and He takes our weakness, and He takes our ugliness. He takes it all, and He gives everything He has to get you. I've been married for almost 12 years now. And you know, the first I love you, I love yous you say in a relationship are like a big deal. Right? I've had these conversations with y'all before, and it's always fun. Dropping the L-bomb for the first time in a relationship. And it's exhilarating. And you would think the first I love you's that happened between me and Elizabeth um, would be the best. And they were exciting. And it's pretty thrilling. But the I love you's I get from her 12 years later are far better. And they're far richer than even those first exciting ones in that first exciting season of romance. And this is why. Because it's been 12 years and she knows me. She's seen things that no one else has seen. She's seen the gross places and the lazy places and the dark places and the evil places. And her I love yous now are no longer simply the words of an infatuated fiancé. And they're good when their infatuated fiancé says that. We're not diminishing that. Her I love yous now are so much richer. Because they're the words of someone who's seen everything about me and still says, I gave up and I am giving up and I will give up anything else in order to keep you. That's the love that God holds out for you. And the way Brent said it when he talked in this text, he said, it is the hardest thing to believe and it is the truest thing in the world. Don't you wish you had something worth selling everything you have for Don't you wish you had something that was that much treasure? Jesus sold everything he had for you so that you could do it for him. Let's pray.